You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Your Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and today we have on J.D. Sustar. You might also know him as the finance cowboy on all social media channels. In the span of three years, J.D. has already amassed 22 rental properties. I think we might have to update that because I think you've grown more since then. But he also helps teach thousands of people every day on how to invest in real estate and what steps they need to take to get their personal finances in order. JD and I share a lot of commonalities in our background, so I'm super excited to have him on the show. And I'll just say, JD, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Well, you know, we like to start with the difficult questions. What's your favorite ice cream? Chocolate, no doubt. So you are actually the first person that I think has said pure chocolate. We got a lot of vanilla, not chocolate. Yeah, no, there's no other. There's no other ice cream. Chocolate's it. Okay. Okay. You throw any toppings on the chocolate? Any sprinkles, nah, sauces? No. If I was going to do anything, we can mix it with some peanut butter. But still, I mean, just the pure chocolate is is golden. Yeah. Well, you had me at peanut butter and chocolate. I think peanut butter <laughs> is good on any ice cream. Yes. Awesome. Well, tell our listeners what's the scoop. What do you do today? So I'm a W-2 employee at a medical device company. I'm in sales. And so thoroughly enjoy that. Was you know started making a high income through that and decided, okay, I have to deploy this capital somewhere, right? I don't want to waste it. I don't want to spend it. I know I want to build wealth, you know, eventually get to financial freedom. And you know, after exploring different avenues, real estate by far seemed like the way to go. And so I started buying real estate in 2018. I'm actually up to 21 properties. I went down, I sold one. So I'm at 21 now. And I you know, got a lot of questions from friends, from people in my network asking me like, man, how are you doing this? How are you buying real estate? What's the deal? And so I ended up starting what's called Finance Cowboy. It started on Instagram. I call it, you know, it's my second personality, my online personality. It's like that Brad Paisley song, everybody's cooler online, you know, so much cooler yeah. online. That's me. Yeah. And I started that back in July of... Um, 2021 and people have liked my content and is growing. I have over 30,000 followers today where I just put out tips daily on, you know, how to buy properties, how to analyze properties, what you're looking for in deals. And I am close to completing a course slash mentorship where people can come on board, take the course and then get mentored weekly by myself and my team on how to buy those properties, whether you're just starting out or you're scaling. So we got a lot going on and I'm super excited. Nice. Well, I know we'll dig into the course towards the end of the show because I know you're really good about creative financing and finding creative deals. But before we get there, you mentioned of you always knew that you kind of wanted to park your capital into real estate. I got to ask, like, what caused that? So usually there's some kind of event or mentor or book that leads people down this route. What led you to believe that that was the best way to route to go? I grew up uh, in a pastor's home. I'm actually sitting in my dad's office at his church right now recording this podcast. And so I didn't grow up around you know money. We didn't have a lot of money. We didn't have assets. There was no financial freedom talk. And so I really you know didn't get inundated with it until I met my wife. And me and my father-in-law, her dad, have become very close over the years. And he's kind of my inspiration for real estate because I look at what he had done. He had done well in his job with his company building a company from the ground up. And he decided to deploy his capital in real estate. And he's got you know, a lot of properties, waterfront, land, commercial buildings. 
And I saw what it did for him over time. It, it literally gave him freedom to be able to do whatever he want, wanted to do. And so I was still young, you know, when I'm learning all this. So, I, you know, I didn't go straight into like, oh, I can't wait to just dive into real estate mode. But like, you kind of stick that in the back of your mind. You're like, oh, well, that seems like a good idea. And so, you know, still, even then, there's a lot of fear that comes with real estate. You know, it's scared to take that jump. And I remember I was in pharmaceuticals and I just switched from there into the med device. And, you know, I'm I'm doing pretty well with money and income. And my best friend had started in real estate right out of college. And he had started buying rental properties and getting in on deals and syndicating on deals. And he just kept telling me, he's like, man, you have got to start buying real estate. And I was seeing what it was doing for him, even in his short amount of time of buying, like the wealth that he was creating. And, uh, you know, the fear was holding me back. Fear was holding me back, you know, because I could just, I can remember to this day for all of you newbies on here, like, I remember what that feels like. You don't know what's on the other side. And so you're scared to take the plunge because you think of everything bad that's going to happen. But he literally brought me a property in Greenville, South Carolina, right down the road from me. And he said, you're buying this. Like, really didn't give me an option. He's like, no more like, you know, piddle farting around, like you're buying this property. And so I took the plunge bought it. And it's interesting because as soon as I closed, like that fear of the unknown and like, I'm not supposed to do this. Like, this isn't for me. Am I even allowed to do this? Do I know what I'm doing? Disappeared. And I was like, okay, but this isn't bad as I thought, like people need a place to rent. They're actually paying their rent on time. The house isn't burning down. And, you know, 21, 22 properties later, here we are. And it's a lot of fun. So you mentioned he brought you that property and also your father-in-law was in there. Why did you decide to do it then? Because the reason why I'm asking this question is because I, I have a lot of friends similar. They see that I do real estate. They understand now they want to get involved, but they can't overcome that hurdle because what if another 2008 happens? Or I had a granddad's uncle, milkman cousin who lost their shirt in real estate and don't want to get involved. So do you remember, was there anything specific that made you want to buy that property after he bought it to you? Was either my wife was going to spend all my money or I buy property. So no, I'm just, I'm joking. Well, I'm kind of joking. No, but I came to a realization because when you have that fear holding you back, that's emotion. Okay. And that's fear can be good. Emotions can be good. A lot of times we act on emotions, but I finally was able to take a step back and look at logic and say, what does logic say about this scenario? What does logic say about real estate? (laughs) And logic and facts and data have shown that if you put your money in this asset, you will become wealthy. That's just all there is to it. And so I was able to get to the mindset of, I am exposing myself to more risk by not investing in real estate than I am by investing in real estate. And when I came to that realization, it changed my life forever. That's it. I mean, I say it all the time that real estate goes up and to the right as long as you hold it long enough. Now, the problem is I can't tell you how long that is. For some markets, it might be two days. For other markets, it might be 10 years. But over time, real estate will go up and to the right as long as you hold it long enough. 100%. So what was this property in Greenville? Was it a single family? Was it a townhome? Talk to us about what the property was. It was a three-bed, two-bath, single-family home. And I actually just sold it. So it's the only property I've ever sold. And it was the first one I bought. But Greenville is one of the fastest growing areas in the country. I was able to get in this property for $68,000. Houses were, I knew that investors owned the houses around the street and they were already starting to flip some. So I was able to get in before that neighborhood turned around. And, you know, rents were good. Cash flow wasn't great. You know, if you're on the, in the social media world, everybody just, you know, talks about, 
you know, all cash flow, all cash flow, which is great. I think you should look for cash flow and properties, but there's something to be said for appreciation mixed with tenant debt buy down. And so while my cash flow wasn't insanely good, I felt confident, you know, I had enough cash flow left over after all of my expenses. And then I knew I was in a great area. And so I went for it and, you know, I bought it for 68, probably put 10,000 in it and just sold it for 140 without doing any more work, without removing a tenant um, two months ago. So it's a pretty good turnaround in, you know, four years. Yeah. What's that? Double your money in four years? Four years with no extra capital. And I didn't have to get rid of a tenant. So yeah, this is the same conversation I'm having with a few of my friends too, is like, on a numbers basis, 70K in four years doesn't feel like a lot, but you doubled your money in four years. Where else can you go get an asset that cash flows and doubles your money in four years? Yeah. I mean, you you break that down, that's almost 20 grand a year. I've almost yeah. made on that property 20 grand. Now, obviously, I didn't realize it until you know, I actually sold it, but that's pretty decent, you know? Yeah. What was your friend going to do with the property? Was he going to flip it? Was he just going to hold it? What was his plan for it? So he didn't own it. They were going to buy it. And he was like, Lou was like, I'm going to get you in the game. He's like, I'm not going to buy this because you need to get in. And, you know, he brokered the deal. So he, he made, you know, some money off of it, but he wanted me to get in. I think number one, he's my best friend of all time. And number two, I think he realized, you know, he's like, if I can get Jaren in real estate now, there's going to be some opportunities to partner with him down the road. And we can talk about that later, but we've partnered on a number of properties and now he manages a $14 million fund that I invest in. So it's a good, good long-term play for him. Always be thinking long-term and whatever you do, play the long-term game. It works out. Yep. Yep. We were talking about that before the uh, the show kicked off here about playing long-term and building relationships. But so you bought that property. How soon was it until you bought your second property? I bought the second property. It was within six months. So I don't remember okay. that was in 2018. I can't remember the exact month, but it was either right towards the end of that same year in 2018 or beginning of 2019. And it was just a snowball. It became, I don't want to say the word addiction, but it almost became an addiction. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I uh, like to say that I know plenty of people who have never bought real estate. I know plenty of people who own millions of dollars of real estate. I know no one that only owns one other property. One other investment <laughs> property. Yeah, that's exactly right. So talk to us about what your portfolio looks like today, because one of the things I love doing research about you is how many different asset classes within real estate you're in, but also how you find creative deals. So talk to us a little bit about what your portfolio looks like today. So right now I have 12 single family homes. Some of those are in a partnership. The majority of them are mine. Some of them are in a solely, but I have some with my buddy. And then I own seven mobile homes in a partnership. And then I own two Airbnbs that my wife and I bought in Charleston, South Carolina. Nice. Well, before we get to the Airbnbs, I want to start at the mobile homes. How did you find seven mobile homes? What was the benefit there? Where are they? Talk to us a little bit about that. So they're in a place called Piedmont, South Carolina. You know, again, this deal was also brought by my friend Gas, and I promise not all of my deals were brought by him. Those are like the two, the two that he brought to me. So I do, I can also talk about finding deals on your own, but this was one that he wanted to partner on. And I think the big key when you look at something like a mobile home or any type of property where it's like really a cash flow play, it's not as much appreciation. I think it's smarter to start and build a strong foundation of uh, real homes, like single family, long-term rentals first. And so that's what I did. I built a strong foundation. I probably had five to seven single family, long-term rentals where you know I was cash flowing, but they were in good areas that were going to appreciate. And then once I had that, I felt comfortable to take a little more risk, call it, and go for the mobile homes. And so we own the land and the mobile homes. So here's a tip. If you're going to buy mobile homes, do not just buy the mobile homes and not the land. 
Don't ever do that. Like if you're going to buy the mobile home, you you need to buy the land too. Or a lot of people just own the land and charge fees for them to put mobile homes on. So that's a little tip with mobile homes, but they cash flow really well. And so it's a good mix to add the, to the portfolio to bring help bring in that monthly cash flow that it's going to be higher than what you're getting on those single families. You just have to know they're not going to appreciate. So you're buying like a vehicle. It's going to depreciate over time. Now, the, the land has the potential to go up in value, but the actual units themselves, they're not. And the maintenance is going to be higher. So when you're running your numbers, you have to know, you know, let's say a standard maintenance rate for a long-term rental uh, single family home is going to be 15%, call it. You know, with the mobile home, you're looking 25, 35%. So you're going to have, you know, more things are going to go wrong just because they're not built as sturdy as a home. But they've been a good investment. And uh, we actually bought that on a private note. So the owner is financing it to us because it's very hard to get lending for mobile home parks. So you, you pretty much have to buy them in cash. You got to have owner financing. So it's an owner financing deal. So I want to get into the owner finance, but before we get there, you talked about making sure you own the land and not just the mobile home. And I think there's this idea out there that mobile homes are cheap and affordable. And so we're just going to buy those and hold those and rent them out to people. But to your point, they depreciate faster because usually the quality of the material isn't as good as a house. So do you all own the homes and the land then and lease back the home as well? Or do you only own the land that it sits on and charge a lot rent? We own both. So we charge a lot rent and we charge rent, you know, for the actual units themselves. Gotcha. Do you have any plan on seller financing those homes back to the uh, tenants today? No, we don't. As of right now, it's going good for us. The cash flow is good. So, you know, we haven't even explored that. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Let's talk about the private note. So what is a private note or seller finance? And then more importantly, I'm dying to ask, how did you find it? How did you get it? Then the structure that way because seller finance is a fantastic tool that I haven't been able to use yet. Yeah. So we knew this person through a network. So networking is huge, guys. If if you're not doing it yet, I would just start telling everybody you know that you want to buy real estate and you will be surprised how many deals start coming your way. And this was one of those where the guy was ready to offload it and we heard about it and we knew him through our network. And he knew, you know, if he was going to sell it to us, we're like, you know, we're not, we're not going to pay cash for it and we can't get a bank note. So are you willing to hold a note? And he's an older gentleman. And I'll tell you, a lot of these guys who are older and they're, you know, caught 55, 60 and up and they built wealth, they want the mixture of holding a note. Like that's a diversity in their portfolio. And so don't ever look at when you're asking somebody to hold a note as like, it's a, you're begging or it's a bad thing. Like, no, that's a good thing for the seller and it's a good thing for you. And so we approached him with it. We put down, I think it was 20 or 25%. I don't remember the exact purchase price at the time. And he's holding the rest on a, it's on a straight 10 year note. A lot of times, you know, that won't necessarily be the 20 year amortization where five year balloon, you got to pay him back, but there's all we can get into totally different structures, but our structure for this one was a straight 10 year note. And uh, because the cash flow is so high on these mobile homes, we were able to do a note that short, still cash flow, and it ends up being a good deal. We're going to have a free and clear mobile home park in you know seven and a half years. Yeah, that's what I love about that too. Is in seven and a half years, you're going to own that bad boy full out, and the cash flows will really go up then. And mm-hmm. I want to highlight what you were talking about that some older investors want note income in their portfolio because. It's stable income backed by real estate. If you ever default on it, they can go grab the real estate back from you through a foreclosure process. 
And I believe in what you were talking about too, with the stability of single families, like I have a big note portfolio as well, just to provide stable income that gives me a foundation to go reinvest that capital or be more risky in where I deploy capital because I know that I've got stable income coming in. Yep. That's in, in today's market too, it's great to be a private lender because interest rates are up. So they're making really good money right now. Yep. Yep. Let's shift now to the Airbnbs. So you have two Airbnbs. Talk to us about why you decided to get into that space. And then we'll dig into some learning lessons you might've had from there. So the Airbnbs are, I bought the first one in 2019. It's on an island called Seabrook Island. It's a gated community outside of Charleston, South Carolina. So it's in Charleston County. And my family had been vacationing there for years. And so I went to school in Charleston, but was living in Florida for a while. We started having kids, moved back to South Carolina. So we started vacationing there with my family. And uh, the first year we, we went with them back there was 2019. And I was like, holy moly, like, I got to buy a place here. This, you know, I was new to real estate. Like I bought probably five or six long-term rentals. And I'm like, I got to like, I got to get in on this. And so the island is just immaculate. It's HOA. You know, you got to pay a capital fee to get in. It's not the greatest. Now it's hard to get in and find a good deal. I was still able, and I'll talk through the deal here in a minute. I was still able to get a good deal, but it was expensive to get in. But the island is like million dollar homes everywhere. Just these nice homes. It's so manicured. You got these two championship golf courses, championship tennis courts, a pool that overlooks the ocean, a bar, a restaurant. And so I was like, man, this is great. The problem is these are so expensive. Well, there's this one street that has these two bed, two bath octagon shaped homes. And so they were built in like the seventies and it's the epitome of buy the worst house in the best neighborhood. This was the worst house in the best neighborhood. It was for sale at the time in 2019 for 185 grand. And I ran my numbers on it and I, I really was green to the Airbnb space. So I was kind of guessing, I wasn't exactly sure what I could get for rent, but I had a, you know, a decent idea. And so we bought it, you know, number one, yeah, it was going to be a good investment, but I think probably at the time we were leaning more towards, oh, we're going to buy it because we want to be able to come here and somebody else can pay off our vacation home. I would caution against that. And now that I have had them for some time, I don't think that's the best way to buy Airbnbs. It worked out for us but I don't think that's the best way to buy Airbnbs. Why is that? Because that's something I've been tossing around in my mind is like find a vacation home of a place that I would want to go longer term, Airbnb it out, let it pay for itself and then own it for the long term. But why is that? Yeah. I just think you can make some bad decisions doing that. As long as you're disciplined and you make the numbers make sense, that's great. But things change, man. It's like we were thinking that, but now we have three kids and we may have more and it's a two bed, two bath. You know, at the time we had, I think one kid, maybe two. And it's like, oh, this is perfect. But life changes, you know, and 20 years from now, are you still going to like that place? Do you still want to go to that particular vacation spot all the time? Or are you a multimillionaire and you rather just be able to bounce around and go all over the place? And yep. so I don't think there's anything. I did it. So I'm not saying you can't do it. It's not like inherently wrong. I would just encourage you buy it more for investment purposes and then enjoy it while you're there. Like this year, we have set aside a week every month to go down, right? We haven't done that up until now, but there's always in the back of your mind when you buy it and you're Airbnb in it, anytime I go, I'm missing out on a lot of money, yeah. you know? So it, it's there. You, the amount of money you're missing out on is about the same amount it would cost you to go just go rent somewhere. So you have that as well. But yeah, so I would just, you know, buy for investment purposes in a, you can buy it in a desirable place, but just don't let it be, you know, I'm buying this for me later as the number one. It would be yeah. my tip to you guys. 
It's funny you said 2019. It's funny you said where that is. I've got a buddy that lives in St. Simon's Island, which mm-hmm. he's been on the show and he talked about buying an Airbnb and he asked me to partner with them on it. And in Nashville, where I live, the laws have been, we could do Airbnb. We can't do Airbnb. We could do it in certain spots. We can't do it. Now we only can in these spots. So I'm like, ah, that just sounds too much for me. But he is making a killing doing that. And I'm, I'm assuming this is very similar because there's golf courses. It's a gated community, nice area, people vacation there. Exactly. Yeah, it's a lot like St. Simon's, you know, it's a, the same type of idea. So we gross, I gross 60, you know, grand a year off of them, you know, and I bought for this first one for 185 and the second one, two years later, right across the street, same type of home for 285. And I thought I was way overpaying. I was like, I just paid a hundred thousand dollars less a year and a half ago, you know? But it's still, you know, they both do great and they've appreciated that, you know, the one on the, I got one on the lagoon. The second one I bought is probably worth 475 now. And the first one that's not on the water, it's probably worth 425. You know, so you look at just appreciation alone, like we're cash flow and the cash flow is good, probably 900 bucks a month each because the HOAs are so high. You know, if I bought in a no HOA area, probably 1200 to 1500 bucks, you know, a month. But the appreciation because of the location, you know, we're kind of insulated there. So there's some learning lessons in going from long-term investing in single-family homes to Airbnbs. Can you talk to us about your journey through those and, and some of the learning lessons you picked out along the way? Yeah, it's two totally different worlds, really. It really is. I have somebody manage all of my properties now, and I've always had somebody manage the long-term rentals. But in general, long-term rentals, even if you were managing them, are going to be so much easier than Airbnbs. And the volatility behind Airbnbs is so much greater. Like, for example, during COVID, I couldn't rent my places out for a whole month in April. You know, now luckily we got money set aside and emergency funds and things of that nature. It was fine. It didn't hurt us. But so you can't control that. Like when the government's going to say people can't travel. Now, is that going to happen all the time? Probably not. I hope not. But that's just an example. And then, like you mentioned with Nashville regulations, you don't know, you know, is the the politicians going to change their mind and come down with regulations? That's why I really push if somebody's going to buy Airbnbs, I tell them to buy in areas that have allowed short term rental for years. Like they love short term rentals. And yeah, I don't want to stir the pot anywhere, but a lot of times the politically conservative areas are safer for short term rentals as well, just from a straight standpoint as far as like regulations and all. They tend to be a little looser in my experience. So you just that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying, you know, not don't necessarily just buy because it's where you want to go. Look at the data behind it. Where where are the politics more lax? Where have been people been going for years and where are the regulations set in stone? They've been set for the last 15 years. So you're not gonna you're not gonna have any surprises. Because if you buy an Airbnb based off short-term rental numbers, they shut down short-term rentals and you go to long-term rental, you're gonna lose money every month because it's not even comparable the amount of income that comes in with a Airbnb compared to a long-term rental. And so you got, yeah, so you got that. And then you've got just like the management of the people that are coming in. So like a long-term rental, they move in and like, you don't really hear from them that much. Like they're doing their thing with a short-term rental. You got somebody new coming in, you know, at the least seven days, sometimes every other day or every two days, and everybody has different standards. And so your lifeline is your, your reviews. And so if somebody comes in and they're bougie and they're expecting the Ritz-Carlton and you're like, hey, dude, I'm not offering the Ritz-Carlton and you get a two-star review, that hammers you. And then you can only automate so much. And so like, yeah, people say, oh, Airbnb is great. I, I do all this automation. Well, I do too. Everything's pretty much automated. Cleaning team, bookings, all of my message, check in, check in in the middle of their stay. I check in after their stay. 
But when people ask you specific questions, like where's the closest restaurant, which you want to be like, Hey, why don't you just Google it? You know, you can't do that, but you get those more specific questions. Somebody's got to be there to answer it. And so it's way more labor intensive, but the ROI is greater as well. So you just got to weigh what you're willing to deal with. Yeah. A couple of things I wanted to pull out there is one, I agree with you on the markets, a place like Gatlinburg, Tennessee, which is two and a half hours away from Nashville or four hours away from Nashville. I mean, they built their entire economy off of short-term rentals. They were doing short-term rentals in the 50s before hotels moved out there. Places like the Ozarks, like places like that, Blue Ridge, Georgia, they're just built for short-term rentals. They're never taking it away because that's what their tourism is based off of. And then the second thing is really the automation, I think, is key to this whole space. I did an episode with Colin Tate a few episodes ago that we'll link in the show notes where he talked about like the automation he builds in. But there's always those one-off questions that that's why I, I personally have never gotten in the space is because I don't want to answer that. That's not the highest and best use of my time, let alone having to think about answering that would take up so much mental bandwidth that I just couldn't. I, I, that's not what I'm going to go do. So how have you gotten around that though? You have somebody managing it. Is, mm-hmm. is it someone you know? Do you have a company or? Yeah, I actually hired my mom. It was great because I got a really good deal compared to a company. Now she still gets paid. Don't get me wrong. But it's not quite as much as a company, but she handles it and it's nonstop for her. You know, it's, there's always something. It's just like little things. The batteries are out on the remote and the cleaning team didn't catch it. Light bulbs are out. Or the worst is that the cleaning team forgets to show up and the renters get in at 10 PM and the house is still completely dirty. That's a fun one. You know, so, so yeah, I offloaded that to somebody. I would, you know, I'd recommend if you're not going to landlord full time, give that to somebody. You just got to build that into your numbers, though. That's going to affect your cash flow numbers when you're analyzing a property. So know what you're doing going in. Yep. Yep. I want to switch this now. You're starting this coaching program and mentorship program. You deal with a lot of beginner investors on your Instagram channel and answering some of the questions that you uh, get from them. What are some of the common themes you see from beginner investors or some of the biggest mistakes you see them doing? I'd say the biggest common theme is not buying fear. I spend a lot of my time answering DMs, encouraging people to take that step. You know, they ask me, do you think this is a good deal? And they'll send me their numbers and it makes sense. So I'll take it to them and it makes sense. And then they keep coming back. Well, do you think the market's going to go down? Do you think I should buy this? Is this, is it, you think it's going to work? And so I think, I mean, that's part of my, what I look at as my duty with this account is like encouraging people to take that step. That's number one. And then number two is really analyzing a property correctly. I am a big fan. I sell a calculator. It's like really cheap. It's on my Instagram page and it's what I use for every deal. And I can just plug in all the details of a deal and then it spits out how it's going to perform. And that that's my metric. You know, it removes all emotion and I'm able to look and say, okay, this is the cap rate I'm looking for, cash on cash, cash flow. Let's go for it. Or I look and I say, this doesn't make sense at this price point. Can I get it at a lower price point? If not, let's move on. And so I would say those are the two things, getting them to take the jump and then making sure they're running their numbers right. Yeah. Do you have a, what is your buy box criteria? As far as like cash flow, cash. Yeah. What are you, you looking know, for in a deal? Basically. I'm, I'm a little more of a wild card. So it's hard. I'm not like, I'm just not that probably as structured as I should be of like, I have to have this cash flow. I have to have this cash on cash return. So it's hard for me to say, I mean, I've bought properties as low as like a, you know, six cap and I'm making 75 bucks a month in cash flow, And then I've got properties that cash flow 900 bucks. So 
to be honest, I think, you know, there's different factors that go in. Like if, you know, the cash flow sucks, but I feel like this is an area that's going to appreciate over time, then I'll go for it, you know? And then there's other areas where I'm like, yeah, this area is not really up and coming and the cash flow, but the cash flow is bringing in 350 bucks a month. And it's not like in a D class, it's still a C class neighborhood, then I'll go for it. So it's hard. I would challenge anybody and some people do it, but I would challenge a lot of people who say, I only buy this, I only buy that. I'm like, you know, I don't know if you're telling the truth because there's just so much that goes into it, you know, outside of just like, you know, one number, one metric, yeah. you know, there can be different things. So I don't know. Yeah. You know, I would say, but so to answer your question, I would say in general, if I'm buying a long-term rental, I don't probably don't want anything less. And this is low, less than an 8% cash on cash return. I want probably at least 150 to 200 bucks in cash flow, you know, and then whatever the cap rate ends up, that's probably going to end up being like a seven and a half or 8% cap rate. So that would be, that's probably my base, you know, of, of how low I'll go. Yeah. And sometimes in numbers too, you don't capture the full potential of something. So for instance, I owned a triplex one time where I threw uh, garage sheds for people to put their extra stuff in and charge $25 a month for them. So on a triplex, that's $75, but those things cost me 150 bucks. So after two months, those things were infinite cash flow, for instance. Yep. And one property I converted one of the bedrooms. So now it was all of a sudden a three by two instead of a two by two. Like I couldn't capture that in those numbers on the front end, but I could on the back end. So I agree with you there. I think we're kind of aligned too. If I'm buying single family, nothing less than $200, $250 a month and a 10% return is kind of what I'm looking for. Now, obviously, listeners know I've kind of moved into larger assets from single family, but those were kind of my right by criteria for single family. Yeah. And a lot of times that cash on cash number is not true either. You're not factoring in you know, depreciation and tenant buy down and also it ends up being a, a larger number than that. So that's a benefit too. And then like I bought properties where I didn't have to put any money down. Like I had a lender who lend me off the appraised values of homes. So I bought a couple of properties and I've got to check back at closing. And so the cash flow wasn't very good because the note was higher than it really should have been. So let's say I'm cash flowing 30 bucks a month, but I put no money into that property whatsoever. So it's just like, you know, essentially infinite cash on cash return. So where did you find a lender that would lend on the appraised value? Because that is probably the best hack I think I've ever heard. Yeah. So there's this guy out of Greenville. They don't, they haven't done it for us in probably a year and a half now, but back in 2018, 2019, and maybe early 2020, they were doing, he's a local lender. Uh, he was the VP of one of these local banks. And we were asked, Hey, is there any way? Cause we were finding undervalued deals. Like we were finding deals for like 60 that were really worth 95. And, uh, like, Hey, anyway, you lend off the appraised value, you know, and it was more money that they were lending on and, you know, probably a higher little closing fee and still a little risk based on the rent we were getting. So they're like, yeah, we'll do it. And so we literally, you know, you got to, it's got to be like, if you're going to get cash back at closing or not have to put any money down, the purchase price has to be, or the appraisal price has to be high enough to where the 80%, you know, it makes up for it. But yeah, it was a, is a great hack. A great yep. hack. Yep. Some of these local banks are way more flexible than your traditional big bank stores. Yeah, no doubt. Well, this is a fantastic conversation. I want to switch this now into the last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what's a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? I like the one-page marketing plan. I can't remember the guy who wrote it, but it really talks about new age marketing. And especially now with me you know, running the, the finance cowboy, Elias, just kind of helps you think how people are, are wanting to be not sold to, but how they want to buy 
and how to reach those customers in this digital age. So that's been a really good one. Not heard of that. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's awesome. You'll love it. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits and the things that you do every single day. What are some of the habits and things that you do every day? Every day I am up at, which is the cliche, you don't have to get up early to be successful. So let me put that out there, but it works for me. I'm up at 5.15 every day and I do my little CrossFit workout with all my buddies from 5.30 to 6.30. So getting that in, you know, reading and having quiet time for me after that, I build that in every day. And then just putting in work that moves the needle for at least four to five hours. Like I like to work out, to have a little bit of quiet time, drop my kids off from school. And then from eight to either noon or one, whenever I feel like I'm like gassed out, I just sprint. And so that's kind of how it works for me. And then spending time with family. And so that's kind of, you know, the routine for me daily. I love it. I love it. I'm an early bird as well. So that's one of the keys to my success is getting up before everybody else does. Yep. Our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Pay now, play later. You can either play now and pay later, or you can pay now and play later. And so my dad used to beat that in my head and he didn't think I heard him, but I did. And so I've just chosen to put the sacrifice in on the front end and everything I do. And then you read the benefits. I'm working on coming up with my uh, life mantras. And I think that might be, might be on there. Yeah. It's a good one, man. It really is. Our fourth one is what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Oh, my, my wife and kids. No doubt. No doubt. I got um, married my wife almost eight years ago. We got three boys. They're one, three, and five. And uh, yeah, nothing even comes close to that. If we're talking outside of that, I would say before business is um, playing division one baseball, that was my dream. And I was able to accomplish it. And then the working world, you know, being successful in my med device job, you know, it's been super proud of that. So that's awesome. Well, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone that are alive, who would it be and why? I think I would go with George Washington. Okay. It would why? be, it would be great to pick his brain on like, what was it like to be the you know first president of this like newfound country and ask him, you know, just see what it took to lead during that period, because it's a, it was a totally different place than what we all live in now. And to pick his brain on leadership and how he was able to, you know, kind of help. There was a lot of people, but keep the glue together and move the country forward in this time where it was an infant. And most importantly, step away. Yes. That was unheard of at that time. Yes. I love it. I love it. Well, JD, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out and learn more about you or subscribe to your tips and tricks or learn more about the course you're putting together, where's a good place we could point them? Right now, the best place for you to follow me is on Instagram at Finance Cowboy. That is my main channel of communication. Currently, I'm working on a website, but that the course, if you're interested in learning um, you know, how to kind of build that foundation and get started in rental properties, hopefully it'll be ready by the end of the summer. Uh, I'm also on TikTok at, at the Finance Cowboy. Somebody had stole at Finance Cowboy on TikTok and then YouTube Finance Cowboy. And so, you know, those three places. Uh, but with Instagram being the main one right now. Nice. Well, we'll make sure to link those all in the show notes and uh, we'll have you back on once the course gets launched up and ready. We'll have you back on because you you got a tremendous future ahead of you and I can't wait to hear more about your success. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate it. This was a blast and thank you for having me. 
Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.